0: Would I? Would you please open your Bibles up, um, and instead of turning to the scripture text that's listed in the bulletin, which is wrong anyhow, um, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26? Matthew chapter 26. If you look down at the front of the church, you'll see a table, and on the table you'll see a meal prepared. The uh, brass. Trays with a lid and a cross on the top have grape juice, also the cup in the center, and then slightly behind the cup are some more trays with little cotton cloths over the top of them. And these trays have bread in them. And all around the world for 2,000 years now, this meal, what we call the Lord's Supper, this meal has been at the center of all Christian worship. It's not a Protestant thing, it's not a Roman Catholic thing, it's not an Eastern Orthodox thing, it's not Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist, but this is our Christian meal. And all Christians come to this table, all Christians eat and drink at this table. And so as we come to this table this morning, it's natural for us to say, well, what gives here? I mean, what is this about? Why do we have this table at the front center of Christian worship? In fact, when we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper, eating it and drinking it on a Sunday, we still have the table here. M- most churches will have uh, two things at the front of their sanctuary. They'll have some visible manifestation of the Lord's Supper and they will have often a very large Bible. And this is the center of Christian worship. Two things. Two uh, things. The preaching of the word of God and the table of our Lord. And then there is a second sacrament, which is baptism. And behind me we have, you can't see it, but there's a tank behind that wall where we do our baptism. So the sacraments, baptism in the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the word are at the center of worship. So then again, why? Why this meal? And why particularly the two parts of the meal? Why bread? Why wine? We call it wine, it's grape grape juice, but it's the same thing. It's the cup and the bread. Well, if we were to look for the institution of this meal, the time when it was first given to us, we would find an account of it at the end of the Gospels, particularly, we're going to read Matthew 26, where we read about Jesus doing this meal with his Uh, disciples you've seen uh, maybe some of the great masterpieces of painting and you've seen da Vinci's uh, Last Supper where they're all gathered around the table eating this meal and I want to read together the account that we find in Matthew 26 of this meal when it was first done when our Lord led it it says there in Matthew 26 and this is God's word eternally true while they were eating Jesus took some bread and after a blessing he broke it And gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I'm sorry, did I tell you I'm beginning with verse 26? So Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's word. So there you have it. There is the first celebration, the first eating of the Lord's Supper we Christians have placed this meal, he's prepared for us and commanded us to eat and drink, we have placed this meal at the very center of our worship services. We do it in obedience to the Lord. As we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we fulfill his command that by this action we are to proclaim his death until he comes again. Now, today we have a hard time figuring out what proclamation is because the closest we get to it is probably um, the Internet. You know, and the Internet doesn't feel like a proclamation. It's probably the quickest way to get the most information to the most number, the largest number of people. It just goes out all over the world. But back in those times, somebody would have to get up publicly and yell. And so that's what we ought to think of when he says, you proclaim my death. We ought to think of this meal that we do as being a public yelling of all of us to everyone within the ability to hear, anybody that can hear us, that Jesus has died. We are proclaiming his death. This is the death of Jesus. And we are yelling it publicly. We're proclaiming it. It's not a private a secret meal it ought not to be hidden from the world but it ought to be as 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 broadcast as it can be that Jesus has died and so we're being obedient in doing this now the purpose is a public testimony a public witness a public proclamation of our Lord's death that's not to be stopped until he comes again until the second coming Now, why would a meal like this be a public testimony of Jesus' death? Well, to answer this question, we have to look at two stories. One is in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, and the other is in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. The Old Testament story is the account of the Passover meal, and the New Testament story is the account of a time in Jesus' life and ministry when his disciples thought he had flipped out, thought he had gone stark, raving, mad. A time when Jesus said something so raw and so uh, completely insane, apparently, that the vast majority, the maybe as many of them as everyone except the twelve, they left him. They, they walked away in horror at what he had said. So I want to look at these two stories. First of all, the Old Testament story of the Passover. And second, the New Testament story, of this time when Jesus said something so insane That almost everybody stopped following him, stopped listening to him, stopped calling him rabbi or teacher, they just left him. Alright? Now, first, the Passover. Turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. Here we have an account of the Passover. What was the Passover? We have to understand the Passover to understand the Lord's Supper, this table and the meal we're going to eat. What was the Passover? Well, you know that the Israelites, the children of Israel, the Jews, we can refer to them with any of those words, they were in Egypt and they were slaves and they were not being treated well. Their slavery was of a, very ter- of a terrible kind. Uh, they were not uh, given honor. They were not paid well. They, they, and then when they had Moses, their leader, come to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, their lot got even worse. Things went from bad to worse. They were suffering. And God decided that he was going to end their slavery and bring them out from under the hand of their oppressors, the Egyptians. And so he sent Moses to deal with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Now Moses dealt with him in many ways. The nation had many calamities come on. Uh, their water, the river went bad. They, they were overrun by all kinds of critters that that bit them and ate them. They had boils come on their skin. Hail came and killed their livestock and their crops. Just bad thing after bad thing happened to them, but Pharaoh would not give in and let the slaves go. And so finally, uh, one final bad thing happened. And we pick up the story as God tells Pharaoh or Moses what to do to end the slavery of his people and finally to make the king. Allow them to go. In verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, One more plague. All these bad things were called plagues. One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. And Moses said, skipping down to verse 4, Thus says the Lord, About midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now stop there for a second. How many of you are firstborn sons? Raise your hand. Everybody look around. Look at these men. Now take the whole land. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Take the whole land of Egypt. And this is what's going to happen. It's not just going to happen with the children. It's going to happen with the fathers. It's going to happen with the grandfathers. All the firstborn. It's going to happen with the cattle. And not just with the donkeys, but with the oxen. It's going to happen with the sheep. It's going to happen with the dogs. All through the land of Egypt, the firstborn sons are going to die. Picture this. And it says, About midnight I'm going out in the midst of Egypt. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the pharaoh, in other words, the crown prince, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, the most uh, overlooked. Hello, Al and Marlene. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. I'm going to start crying again. (laughs) So, all of them are going to die. All the firstborn of the cattle as well, verse 5. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as there shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark. In other words, while death is coming to the animals and all the children of Egypt, the dogs won't even bark at the Israelites. It'll just be absolutely calm. Whether against a man or beast, that you may understand how the word makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now that little line at the end. Think about that. All this is going to happen... All of the firstborn males of the Egyptians are going to be killed by God. And the dogs won't even bark at either the firstborn male animals or sons of Israel. And then this statement, did you note it? At the end it says that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, I have told you many times that at the heart of our culture, the stuff that we believe today is the belief that making distinctions is wrong. We oppose distinctions. We don't like there to be a right and a left, a male and a female. We don't like there to be a saved and a damned. We don't like there to be true religions and false religions. You understand? We hate distinctions. That's a part of our culture and we have sucked it in without even knowing it. But note That right here, God says that he is pleased to make distinctions. Now, that sounds okay. God makes distinctions. Until we stop and we consider how God made this distinction, note, God made it by killing animals and men. On the one hand and on the other hand by protecting them. And this is God. He says, I will do this. Now think about that. This is God. Then look at chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying... And now we're getting into the account of how God makes the distinction. The method. You know, it's not just a decree, but God is always pleased when He does His work to have His work show up among us by us being obedient, because that's our faith. That shows that we believe Him, that we trust Him. That we live for him. So now comes the work that they're to do. I'm going to make a distinction. It's going to end up with all the firstborn males of the Egyptians dead and with you so safe that the dogs don't even bark at you. I'm going to make distinctions. Now here's how we're going to do it, says God. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the tenth of this month they are each to take a lamb for themselves. Lamb? You know, What does a lamb have to do with life and death? according to their father's household a lamb for each household each household a lamb and now if the household is too small for a lamb then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them you, know, you can share a lamb if you're poor if you have too few people then go ahead share a lamb according to what each man should eat so this lamb there to take and there to eat eat okay you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. Take a lamb, share him if you need to. You're going to eat him and make sure that he's perfect. No game, no gamey leg, no you know off-coloring, no hemorrhage, no uh, spots. No, nothing wrong with a lamb. The lamb is to be a year old, it's to be a male, and it is to be perfect. Take him, all right, from the sheep or from the goats... Keep it until the 14th day, verse 6, of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to what? To kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. So you walk through the door, and the door coming into your house is to have the lamb's blood sprayed, painted, thrown against the, par- the, the frames of the door on the right and left, and... The lentil on the top, the, the beam that goes up over the top. God's going to make a distinction. It's going to amount to the death of the firstborn males of all the Egyptian cattle, livestock, and their sons. It's going to amount to the absolute safety and protection of the Israelites. All right, here's how we're going to do it. All of you who have faith in me and in my protection, you do this. Take a lamb, perfect lamb, kill it. You're to eat it and you're to take its blood, and you're to throw it against your door. So that when people look at that household, they see the blood of the Lamb. And by doing that, you, the Father, will make your son safe. So it says in verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So in other words, there was a lot of religion in Egypt, a lot of people claiming that they were doing good, claiming that they were worshiping God. but that night the distinctions was going to be made between the God who was the true God of Israel and all their gods, because their gods were going to be impotent to protect their worshippers from death. The blood, verse 13, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You're to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. You look down at verse 22. Moses says, Take a bunch of hyssop, a branch, and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that's in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning outside you're not covered by the blood for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you and again he says verse 25 you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever and then we see verse 28 and the sons of Israel went and did so Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Imagine this. And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead now let me ask you what does this story teach us well it's so obvious it shouldn't need to be said but it teaches us that god is a God of judgment and holiness. God could have removed the Israelites without striking the animals and the sons dead. But when God struck the Egyptians dead, including their animals, he made a very, very clear picture. He drew it so that the world from then on would remember that As it says in the New Testament, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. We always are creating false gods in our minds with our hands. And when we think of what kind of God we would like, we would like a God who overlooks sin, a God who doesn't notice when he is defied. Egypt and Pharaoh had defied the living God. He had commanded them to let his people go, he had commanded them to stop oppressing their slaves. They wouldn't do it, and God judged them. And God didn't just judge them with frogs and boils and and water that turned to blood, but God judged them to the point where death was throughout the land and there was not a household where you couldn't hear the wail of grief. It's a very sad thing today that with our movies and our magazines and our newspapers and our comedy clubs and all kinds of entertainment and and then uh, our stores and our shopping malls and our restaurants that we can go through life forgetting that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. But all of Scripture again and again and again reminds us that God is holy and he will not tolerate rebellion and sin. And so the point of the death of the Egyptians is that they as a nation were filling up their cup of wickedness and the time came when God judged them. And the sad thing to think is that no matter how awful this physical death was, The physical death ushered all these souls of the men who died into the presence of God where God again judged them and they went to eternal hell because they were not those who had faith in the living God, the true God. They had false gods. And so they died and they died at a time which was uh, long before they should have died by human calculations And then they were ushered into the judgment seat of God. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so the first lesson we should learn here is God is holy and will not turn away from judgment. God cannot turn away from judgment because judgment of sin and rebellion is who God is. It is His character. He cannot forsake His character. I'm an impatient man. By God's grace, I hope one day to get better. But my character is impatience. But God is not impatient. He is holy and He is just. And God will never get better from that. As we get more sophisticated and progressive and more snooty about how sophisticated we are, we will think that God will grow with us you know and as he grows with us he won't be so rigid about this holiness and judgment god is infinitely greater than that because what we think is our growth is actually our decline and our decay and isn't that sweet i see some of you smiling isn't it sweet that God is not limited by us, that he's not as small as we are, he's not as proud, he's not as sophisticated, he's glorious. And he says that he will bring all things to judgment. So the first thing we learn from the Passover is that be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. The one who sows to his sinful nature, from his sinful nature, will receive destruction. And if you think that you can meditate on this table and this meal, if you think you can meditate on the Passover and the protection of the Israelites without looking carefully at the death of the Egyptians, you don't get it. Because really the point was that every single one of those Israelite sons should have been under the death sentence too because every one of them were just as evil as every Egyptian son. The only difference was not the righteousness of those in the homes, but the fact that the household had the blood on the doorpost. Now, first of all, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. God is a God of holiness and justice. But second, what do we learn from here? We learn that it is, as I said, the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorpost that makes the difference. It's not the character of the people in the households. But it's the blood. If an Israelite did not bother to take a little lamb and to kill it and to eat it and to take its blood and put it on its doorpost, it didn't matter that they were an Israelite. They died. Do you understand that? So many of us think that, you know, we just have to have sort of, well-inclined intentions, but we don't need to obey God. So many of us say, well, I believe in God, and I believe in Jesus, but our lives are absolutely empty of any fruit. Any fruit. And just ask yourself that night, if they well, I believe in, in, in the angel of death, and that he will protect us Israelites but you know, I could. I, I I just let it go too long, and by the time I went out to find a lamb, I couldn't. I couldn't catch one. You know, I, I meant to. You know, now death takes that household. Isn't it amazing how God ties His mercy to physical, fleshly things like animals and and eating them and them being without a blemish and and their blood. And so what happened was. They had to have faith and to obey. And the faith and the obedience were like this. You couldn't have faith and disobey and be protected because you didn't have faith. You didn't really believe that you had to do what God said, did you? That's not faith, right? They had to have faith and obedience clumped together just like that. Now, they weren't saved because they were obedient. They were saved because they looked to God for protection. But the way they look to God for protection, and God's always pleased to have us do things to accomplish his purposes, the way they looked to God was by taking the blood, by eating the lamb. And when they took the blood and sprinkled it, and when they ate that lamb, what happened? What happened was that lamb's death took the place of the death of their oldest son. You see that? It was the death of the lamb without blemish, Instead of the death of their son. The Egyptians did not have a perfect lamb that took the place of their son. So their sons died. You see, it's a transaction that's very clear. God says, here it is. It's either your son or it's a lamb. It's either the death of your son or it's the death of a lamb. So we see that God is just we see that God has decreed that the means of saving the Israelites is that their sons, will be, that, that a lamb will take the place of their sons dying. And then third, we see from this story that it was commanded not just that they do this that night, but what? It says in verse 14 of Exodus 12, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. All right. God judges sin, not just here but in eternity. He is pleased to save those who look to Him in faith, and He uses the instrument of the death of a lamb to take the place of their death. And then he commands that what happened there in Egypt that night is continuously rehearsed year after year after year after year by his people. Now think about this. The beginning of your nation, as you recognize it, the beginning of your freedom, the beginning of your living in a promised land, the beginning of your inheriting the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, the beginning of your wandering in the wilderness, the beginning of everything is taken back to that time when God killed the firstborn sons of Egypt, and gave you life through the instrumentality of a lamb who took your son's place. And then, year after year after year after year after year, century after century, you observe this same meal. Again, you go through the same act of having a lamb who is killed, having a lamb that you eat, its flesh. Now, I said two stories. What's the second one? Well, the second story is the story of Jesus where he loses all his disciples. And for that story, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 6. Not 7. That was a mistake, sorry. But John 6, verses 52 to 56. Jesus now has come. He has come to the people who year after year after year after year celebrate the Passover. The time when the angel of death passed over God's people. And Jesus is ministering to them. He's teaching them. He's healing them. He's loving them. He's feeding them. Just earlier, at the same place, He did feed them. There's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And then we read that right after that, He begins to talk about His followers needing to do what? needing to eat his body, his flesh, and to drink his blood. Now think about this. Where is this coming from? And we see the most intense expression of it here in verses 52 to 56. It says there, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his blood to eat? Or his flesh to eat, excuse me. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is the way Jesus referred to himself, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, this is the time when more people get away from Jesus and leave him than any other time in his life other than maybe his crucifixion. But by then, most people would have left him anyhow. This is the moment when everybody leaves Jesus. And if you, having heard me read this, if you wonder what Jesus meant when he said this, you're in good company. Most of his disciples wondered what on earth he meant and they were so scandalized by his words that they rejected him and there were good reasons to reject him after he said this, weren't there? It sounds as if Jesus plain and simple is telling his listeners that cannibalism is the key to eternal life and not just any cannibalism but the cannibalism of himself. What in the world does he mean? Telling us to eat his body and drink his blood. He's not even dead. Does he want us to kill him now? You can imagine many of them thought the pressure on Jesus had gotten to be too much, that he'd flipped out and that he'd gone over the edge. And it's because of statements such as this that C.S. Lewis wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So, was Jesus, as Lewis said, simply a great moral teacher? As most of this world thinks, certainly the people at IU, predominantly that's the thought there. Was he just a great moral teacher, someone to show us how great a man could be? Was he just a man? Was he a lunatic? Is he the devil of hell? we We can make room for the failure of Jesus' followers to get it. If we look back on them at that time, we must remember that they had not gone through the Last Supper where He said, this is My body for you. This is My blood shed for you. They had not gone through the crucifixion and they didn't have the benefit of the entire New Testament which was written after Christ died. They didn't have the apostles showing them what that meant. So we ought not to judge them harshly and think, the idiots, shouldn't they have looked back at the Passover and realized That Jesus was saying that he was the Lamb that fulfilled this pointing that the Passover represented. He is finally the fulfillment of this play that they've been reenacting year after year after year after year. He is the Lamb of God. Don't they remember that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What's wrong with them? Well, put yourself in the place this man that you've been walking around with, watching him feed, heal, raise people from the dead, all of a sudden he says, you know what? If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, there's no hope for you. You're going, whoa. Where did that come from? And you know something? There are two things I'd like to repent of this morning, but I only have time for one. And one of them is, I have often said to my congregations that the fact that so many people left Jesus is an indication that uh, whatever Jesus meant, it is something that, that may give some comfort to those who believe that here at the table the, 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 the bread becomes the flesh of Christ and the wine becomes His blood. And I repent of that. Because, you know, that's precisely why everybody left Him. If, in fact, when we take off the cloths and when we take the lids off and when we dedicate this meal to the Lord, if it then turns into the body and blood of Christ, they were right! Because this is a table of cannibalism. You know, this was what the Christians were accused of by people across the Roman Empire at the beginning of the church. Everybody thought they were cannibals. But what was Jesus saying? Was Jesus really saying that as we come together, that his Holy Spirit will change this bread and this wine into his into his body and his blood, and as we eat it, that we will be saved. That's what they thought, and they all fled. Well the answer is very clear. And the answer is not a wooden literalism. So often we think if we just take the Bible just as it appears, then we're holy just as it appears. Well, no. Many times you take the Bible just as it appears and you don't study it and ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind up to what it means. You make the error of the Roman Catholic Church in transubstantiation. But that is not what goes on here. What does go on? It says in Romans 5, while we were still helpless, all the followers of Jesus were helpless. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his what? By his blood. We will be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see this? How were the Israelites saved? They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. God's wrath against Egypt was turned away from the home that had the blood over its doorpost. And now the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ's blood is over those who are saved. It tells us that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 it says, it was the Father's good pleasure, skipping to verse 20, through Jesus to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through what? Through the blood of the cross. In verse 22 it says, He, Jesus, has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. And then in Acts 20-28, it speaks of Jesus having purchased us with His blood. Ephesians 1-7, we have redemption through His blood. 1 Peter 1-19, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so when Jesus was saying that they had to drink His blood and eat His body, what He was saying was that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That as the Egyptians came under the curse of death and had their lives wiped out and stood before the judgment seat where they would be cast into hell eternally, the Israelites were saved because of the Lamb who had been killed, because they ate the Lamb's body, and because they threw the blood up on the doorpost. And Jesus says, now, here I am, the Lamb of God and I have come to save those who look to Me in faith. And you must eat My body, and you must drink My blood. And then, before He dies, the last thing He does with His disciples is He goes up into the upper room, and they eat and they drink. And He says, this, as He holds out the bread, is My body for you. And as He holds out the cup, this is My blood shed for you. You see, this is why... This meal is at the center of our worship. This meal is at the center of our worship because this is our Passover feast. In the Old Testament, the two signs over the household were the circumcision of their children, their sons, and the Passover that they ate together as a family. And the one marked them as being a part of the covenant community. And the other marked them as being under the blood of the Lamb. And so what we're doing is marking ourselves publicly. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're saying that we're not here because we're clean. We're not here because we're righteous. We're not here because God has somehow seen a way to gather together the people in the community of Bloomington who are deserving of protection and eternal life. We are here only because we are united in saying that Jesus Christ is the death in place of ours. That His blood is in place of ours. That the destruction of His body is in place of ours. And so every time we take this meal, we're proclaiming His death until He comes again. Now it would be impossible to proclaim His death if there was no need of it. And so as we come to this table, we're saying, I am a sinner and there's no more hope for me than there was for the Egyptians or the Israelites. I have no hope except through the blood of Jesus Christ. But we're also proclaiming that the blood of Jesus Christ is completely effective, completely potent, completely pleasing to His Father, that nothing has to be done except He Himself has His death and His life placed in place of us, suffering the condemnation of His Father, the judgment of all sin, and as we trade places with Him, He takes our death and we receive His life. Now, that's the Gospel. And so what would appear to the world to be a very morbid meal where cannibalism is going on and Christians are being gnarly and most of them walk away, the rest of us say, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to all who believe. And so I come to the table and I ask you, do you believe? You can't come to this table lacking faith in your own sinfulness. You know that you're sinful only because the Holy Spirit reveals this to you. And so it's an act of faith to confess your sin. You can't come to this table and eat. Spiritually eat. Eat in faith the body of our Lord and drink His blood. You can't come without having faith that He has taken your place under the wrath of His Father and has paid the penalty for your sins. And so you spring free. You're like a DNA test. It's gone. And so as you come to this table, let me ask you, do you have faith that what God says about you is true? You're absolutely hopeless. In fact, you're worse than hopeless. You deserve only death and hell. Is that your faith? You think, well, I don't think of that as faith. I say, it is faith. And then second, do you have faith in the provision of God of a perfect Lamb, His own Son, who took your place, suffered your penalty, and because of Him, if you live in faith, giving your trust to Him, that He will give you eternal life. That's the meaning of this meal. Did you look at the words that you sang earlier in this service? Look at them with me. The hymn, before the throne of God above, and boy, you, you you understand this truth. The beauty of the Passover and the Last Supper and Jesus saying we have to eat His body and drink His blood. And the words of Him just come alive to you. Listen to this. Before the throne of God above, what's the throne room? It's the place of judgment and justice. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Boy, we are masters of... I love the cartoon that has a man standing in front of, of the court, the bench, with the judge sitting way high and lifted up. And the man stands there cringing, and he looks up at the judge and he says, guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. You think a judge's going to take that? No. We have to have a plea. And it says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect... We don't say guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. My mother didn't do a good job of raising me. My father wasn't there for me. you know the kids were picking on me. And I was an alcoholic. What's our plea Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, not an excuse. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, My name is graven on his hand. that means you know you take one of those you know, uh, diamond-cutter stones. And you, you you know, much worse than a, uh, what do they call them, tattoo. It goes deep into the skin. It's not just color. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, Jesus, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Nobody can tell me to get out of the throne room of heaven. When Satan tempts me to despair, to give up, and tells me the guilt within myself, upward I look and I see Him there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who made an end of all my sin. Because of the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and to pardon me, one in place of the other. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself. What? I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Brother and sister, child, I plead with you to hide your soul in Christ, the Lamb of God. Spread His blood over your doorposts. Come to the table and eat and drink. He won't put you out because you're a sinner. But as you admit your sinfulness, He will say, He came to save sinners.